Today's guest is J.J. Hensley. J.J. is a former police officer and a former special agent with the U.S. Secret Service. After that, he began as an author, and he's written several books with his first book, being a finalist for the 2014 International Thriller Writers Awards for Best First Novel. We chat about what life is like in the Secret Service and what kind of mentality you have to have to run toward danger while the rest of us run away from it. He also shares a story of a specific time he had to do that. I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do too. Hey, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Now, you have quite the varied career. From what I understand, you were in the military at one point. You're a former police officer. Then you were in the Secret Service. Now you're involved in training in the government. Is that a your pathway? Almost. I, I was never in the military. I, I okay. came straight out of college at Penn State. And then for somebody who didn't have any background like that, I went to Chesterfield County, Virginia, police department to a paramilitary academy. So for me, it felt like military. And where are you from originally? uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, Most people would relate it to Marshall University if they've seen the movie, We Are Marshall. So yeah, I was a police officer in Virginia for a few years and then uh, joined the the Secret Service as a special agent based in Richmond, Virginia for a couple years and then transferred up to Washington, D.C., both in their field office and then later at headquarters for several years and then, then went on to Another job in the federal government, training background investigators for the Office of Personal Management. That was in the Pittsburgh area. Ended up. Now, is that um, like I had a clearance in my current job? Is that what you did was go help clear people for clearances like top secret, secret and things of that sort? I trained people who did those investigations. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I trained the the background investigators. And then then I got into the training management side of of doing that. And, and then I uh, ended up at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in, in Georgia. I uh, was with the Marshall Service for a little while doing some uh, training management for them. And, and I'm now doing some accreditation work with as a law enforcement specialist at the, at the same uh, location at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. So, so yeah, yeah I've actually, I don't, I don't know how that happened. Somehow I've been with the federal government almost two decades been in the law enforcement national security realm for over 20 years now. So I don't, I don't feel that old until I get my body. <laughs> then I feel old. Yeah, that's right. You were in secret service Academy or what do you call that in 2000? Uh, yeah, 2000, I would have gone through the secret service Academy in Maryland. That's right. I'm really interested in learning a bit more about the secret service. I know that it was originally with the Treasury Service. Did it get it got moved to Homeland Security now, right? Right. While I was there, actually, is the Treasury Department. I mean, starting in 1865, um, it was one of uh, Abraham Lincoln's last executive orders to create the Secret Service, and ended up under Treasury specifically to combat counterfeiting. It had nothing to do with protection, ironically. And then it was under Treasury all those years, and then after the September 11th attacks, when there was a restructuring and the Department of Homeland Security was created. One of the moves was to move the Secret Service under Homeland Security with a lot of other agencies. So 
I believe it was in later in 2000, late, late in 2002 or early 2003. I can't recall when all of a sudden we got new badges and new stationery and we were Department of Homeland Security. And did the day feel any different? No, it was the same routine. It was the same, same assignment, same mission. It was just, just a different parent agency, basically. To go into the history a little bit, why... How and why did the protection services get added? Uh, it was when President McKinley got there was there was a little bit of protection going on with, uh, but not full time until President McKinley got shot in 1901, um, and and at that point that's when uh, Congress acted and said, okay, we need full time federal protection around our presidents because this is just becoming too volatile. Um, because you have to remember before that, I mean, the, the people would walk right up to the white house and knock on the door, talk to the president. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just a different world. And that's when they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to use the secret service. Um, why the secret service though? I mean, it, it seems like an odd choice. There really was no national police force. There was a fear of national police. Um, oh, this is pre FBI. That, oh yeah. And, um, there was, there was some ties to there. I, you know, I think there were some ties to Pinkerton and, uh, some Pinkerton men and they were, yes. but they were really the closest thing there was to a federal entity that could handle something like that. Well, I know Pinkerton actually protected Lincoln. Right. Before that, there was, you know, there was ties in that. So there, there was, you know, I'm sure that, and of course there was probably some political reasons as well, but, but yeah, they ended up, uh, that's how they end up getting the protection uh, aspect of things. So it was at that point, they, they assumed full-time, presidential protection and then over the years have taken on many many other assignments whether you know the the, the families of the president the vi- and then the vice president and their families and then you know an assortment of other protectees such as candidates for you know, major candidates before the election and whatnot so is that the majority of what they do now or is it still financial crimes right? Uh, the right now these days um it is it is mostly protection. It's there. There are, they are still working cases. They are still working uh, a lot of counterfeiting and other economic crimes, but because of the number of protectees that there are, because there's the, the current president and vice president, then there's uh, their families, which who, you know, they travel a lot uh, and go various places, but then there are, you know, other designees that get, get thrown out there. And then when you get closer to an election, like we did the last election and like, it looks like we're going to have this next election. There are a lot of protectees out there that get declared major candidates. Um, and then there's the major venues such as the DN, the democratic national convention, Republican national convention, and, and all these major events. And it becomes, and, and, and the former presidents uh, and their families that travel. So now is some of that changing from what I understand they're, going to stop doing it after so many years now with with current or future presidents no it was going to be it was going to do that it was going to be a 10-year limit at one point and then they got revoked so now it is still a lifetime performers is my understanding thank you i didn't know that for sure so in secret service and you kind of can do anything in terms of you may be working a counterfeiting case and then get called in to do a detail because they're campaigning in town Oh, absolutely. There was plenty of times when, especially when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., where I would be uh, working a case or um, you know, I'm, I could be you know, wor- working a counterfeit case or even a threat case as, if it wasn't a priority 
and all of a sudden I get the call, hey, we got a notification that this protectee or visiting head of state, we, we would protect those as well. The president of this country is coming is coming in town and you're going to be the head of that, that site lead and your assignment starts tomorrow. And for the next week, that's your assignment. And your whatever you know cases you have and whatnot, that just all gets set aside and you're on protection or you're going to be standing a post somewhere or you might be on an airplane somewhere, whether it be in this country or or abroad. So it's uh, it just depended, you know, back when I started, it depended on where, where the pager sent you and then later where the cell phone sent you or where the boss told you to go. <laughs> so now I think you've said in other interviews that there are Secret Service station all over the place. Yes, all over the country. And there are several offices all throughout the world. Are they in joint facilities like in FBI offices? Because I know there's FBI all over the place. Or do they have their own individual places? They have their own individual workspace. They may share a building, like a federal, you know, being a federal building, courthouse building, things of that nature. But they have their own workspaces unless they're in a joint task force. Uh, there may be agents assigned in a joint task force, things like that. But they have their own office space. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, without going into obviously detail about it, it would it be common that there are secret services permanently assigned to people who will travel with the people, but then when they get to a location, they're reinforced or there are people who are either local or nearby who swell the ranks. Oh yeah, absolutely. There'll be a detail around a protectee, but there's going to be a team. There's going to be all sorts of people on the ground ahead of time who will be creating the perimeter and doing the advance work, doing security sweeps, doing intelligence advances, technical security advances. And I'm not saying anything classified or sensitive. This is all stuff that you, you could well, I could kind of as guessing like this is common sense stuff, not really. Right. This is this is stuff you could probably watch in the line of fire, which now is <laughs> over twenty years old. And then there's the local and state elements that that support that as well because the Secret Service is not a large organization. So for instance, I worked my last few years with the agency I worked on the with the intelligence division. So I would go out and do intelligence advances and talk to the threat cases in the area, do a, intelligence assessments. What were the threats? Where are the threats? Who needs to be monitored bef- to make sure we know, who, you know where they are before the protectee arrives? And I would, I would arrive way before the protectee. The protectee would arrive. And then once the protectee leaves, then I leave. So it's, it's, it, it's a very it's a lot of moving pieces with any kind of movement like that. Were you ever assigned as a part of a detail with any particular protectee long term or were you tangential all the time kind of doing different jobs? No, no, I, I actually didn't want that. I preferred to be on the ground in advance and do either intelligence work or what was called technical security work, which was to look for dangerous things, the things that would go boom or the chemical and biological element. That's kind of a, one of those TV things where people think, you know, everybody wants to be on the detail and be standing next to the president or whatever. But, but that's not actually, number one, that's not actually the case because some of that work is not the most interesting, but, and not everybody, you know, there's just not enough people to do that anyway. And uh, number two, if you, if you, if, if you're working in the secret service, you will be standing next to the president or vice president or whoever at some point, because just by the nature of the job, you're going to be standing next to that stage at any point in time when whoever comes up. And I think my very right out of the academy within a week, I was you know, standing on a rope line next to um, Hillary Clinton when she was first lady. It's it's it, it's not like 
you haven't been trained for that right off, right off the bat. You go through six months of training between the between basic training at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and then the the rest of the training at the Secret Service Academy before you ever go on an assignment. So how long is the training? Um, a total a total of about six months. You do like back then when I went through, you did about was about two and two and a half months down at Fletzy in Georgia and then another three and a half at the Secret Service Academy in Maryland. Um, those, those times may have changed a bit. Honestly, being a person going ahead, it would seem more interesting to me personally. Yeah. The, I, I always enjoyed the cerebral aspect of it. The, uh, the interviewing of the threat cases or the conducting the, the security sweeps and mapping out what the high threat areas were. I, I enjoyed that aspect of it much more than, standing post or actually actively working a detail. Well, you are a novelist. So were you creating scenarios in your mind, essentially planning a potential hit? So, you know, the areas? No, no, I, I would, I would do that in my head for my job. But back then I had absolutely no aspirations of being a writer. Um, it wasn't until um, I left the secret service that I actually even started writing. So I wasn't, it wasn't even occurring to me to, to become a writer when for a majority of the time that I was with secret service, but you still were using your imagination and creating stories. Oh, and creating- sure. Yeah. I was always creating scenarios and you know, how, okay, how would I do it? How would I, you know, did we think of this? Did we think of that? There's, you're always thinking of contingencies. Now I've heard a rumor and I, I think, well, he said in public, you can tell me if you've heard about it or not, but people like Brad Meltzer have been invited into brainstorm potential threat i have not heard that but that'd be pretty cool to bring people in kind of as a what would be called a tiger team to to say you know okay what would you do and how would you do it now there's you know probably plenty of resources out there in the military that you could tap into but that would be that would be pretty cool to to have people do that maybe it's good pr yeah (laughs) can you go into a little bit about what would be an example day or or day that really stands out to you in your Secret Service life. Probably a, a day that probably encapsulates how how surreal the job actually is and how weird the job can be is I remember we had a visiting, it wasn't even a head of state. Technically, it was somebody a little bit lower level, but it was a high threat level because it was not long after the September 11th attacks and I was in D.C. And that protectee was visiting an ambassador on Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. on Mass Ave, Massachusetts Avenue. And I was standing out by the motorcade while the protectee was inside the house, the ambassador's house. And a guy came stumbling down the sidewalk. And I stepped away from the motorcade because I had noticed him coming down the sidewalk. And I noticed he had kind of looked like his shirt was only on one arm. So it was dangling off one arm and he had a backpack over the other shoulder and he looked a little disheveled. And so I stepped forward and he just looked off and I stepped forward and said, you know, sir, can I help you? And he's walking toward a line of dark cars and police cars. And so kind of strange, he should see where he's going. And he kind of stops and then kind of like looks around and he kind of turns a little bit and now I see his backpacks open and I see what looks like wires are protruding. Oh God. Yeah. And then, now this is after, right after September 11th. So we've all been trained, Hey, you know, be on the lookout for certain types of behavior for suicide bombers. So now I've, he's definitely got my attention. So now I'm putting my hand on my weapon and I'm starting to approach him a little closer because the, the high threat level country that we're dealing with, was a middle Eastern country. And I'm like, you know, sir, I need you to stop there. Well thinking, okay, now he's going to either, 
retreat or possibly detonate if it is a suicide bomber. He looks up and I see his eyes are really glassy. Now I'm really on alert because sedation is a technique that's been taught to suicide bombers for years, going back to the Tamil Tigers. It was sedate to, to calm themselves before detonating. Oh, wow. So now I'm really not happy about the situation. And this the son of a gun takes off running, but he takes off running toward the house and not away from us. Actually, takes off at a 45 degree angle from me, like, but almost toward me, but toward the house. So now I go and cut him off. So now this is how weird the job is, is I'm running toward a guy I think is going to blow up and hoping, hoping that he's, you know, and I went to college, mind you, hoping that he's going to blow up and kill me. And, you know, and I'm yelling, stop, stop, stop. And now everybody's looking on the street, all the uh, their officers and agents. And the guy doesn't blow up. And now I'm drawing my weapon. And he then I'm thinking, I'm going to have to shoot this guy in the head. And uh, then he turns and takes another sprint and runs right down Massachusetts Avenue into busy traffic. And now I'm chasing this guy who's got his shirt dangling, flapping behind him. And he and I'm thinking I'm chasing a guy who I think might have a bomb, and I, I must be incredibly stupid. And I'm chasing this guy, and we have these unmarked units circling around. One can see see what's going on, and the other's coming down the street. And I can hear all this going on in my earpiece, and I can hear the radio traffic, which is now erupted. And I'm yelling, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" And I hear on the radio, I hear this female agent coming in the car. I hear her calling the other, the other agent in the car who can't in another car who can't, can't see what's going on. And she's saying, you know, Smith, Smith, you need to get over here. JJ's chasing some guy in a Cape. And there's this long pause while I'm running down the street. And he, he replies back. Why is JJ wearing a Cape? <sighs> and I'm thinking now I'm going to have to kill two guys. Cause now how somebody thinks I'm wearing a Cape while I'm doing my job. Uh, and then we, the, the guy actually bounces off of a car that hits him and then rolls over in, onto the sidewalk, separates from his backpack. Everybody pounces on him. And we walk over to his backpack, which now nobody wants to touch because we assume it's going to blow up. But what has slid out of his backpack is a uh, it's like a, a, a Nintendo. It's a gaming system. Oh, good. Lord. So this guy, um, I mean, he almost, he met all the indicators of a suicide bomber. He um, almost got himself killed, and all because he was actually a a college student. He was high, and saw cops and got paranoid and flipped out. Um, oh, so it, that's just the that was the surreal nature of the job, and just show you how dangerous it can be on both ends. Just you know, he he had no idea what he was walking into. Just walked up and saw cop cars and thought, "I'm high." I'm you know, a little drunk and I'm flipping out. Wow. And, <coughs> and to question you a little bit, uh, how do you get the mental switch to flip to where you chase toward a danger versus a, away from it? I mean, I've been in the military and that's a, a whole nother level kind of discipline. Are you compartmentalizing? Do you shut yourself off? I mean, you're married, you have a kid. It doesn't seem normal. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it, it was just the training. Because, um, I, you know, I had been a police officer before, and and that was that was different because I remember it was all muscle memory. When Whenever, some, you know, shots were fired or um, there was a threat, you took cover. 
And I remember my, I remember, you know, one of the first weeks at the Academy, uh, at the secret service Academy, we did a protective drill and we were supposed to be protecting you know, this role player. And the attackers came out and I got behind a giant blue mailbox and started returning fire and left my protectee just standing out there by himself because that was my, that was, that was what I was, I'd been trained and been doing for years. Sure. And uh, it took, it was just ingrained in me. And I was like, Oh, well, that's right. I'm, I, I, I'm not supposed to get behind cover. I am the cover. And it took a lot of training to, uh, and then it just became reaction. And I, that's why, that's why, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, would you take a bullet for this person? And, you know, would, would you have taken a bullet for that person? It never mattered who the person was um, because it was just the training. It didn't matter if it was the president of the United States or the president for the Democratic Republic of the Congo. If that was your assignment, that's how you reacted. See, you were really, it's kind of like soldiers. Everybody's like, well, how do you feel about Iraqis or how do you feel about this group or whatever? And and the soldiers aren't really fighting against the others they're fighting for their fellow soldiers is that a similar situation where you're not your job is to take care of a productee and that they're just kind of a role but you're part of a bigger organization and this is what you do. yeah yeah you're, you're doing your job your task you're, you're making sure that the elected person is not going to get killed it's going to be a peaceful transfer of power at some point or you're going to complete your assignment you're not going to jeopardize your team or if it's you know visiting head of state, you know it's it's kind of like hey, not on my turf, you know, not in, not in this country. You're going to do your assignment, and and uh, hopefully everybody goes home. But you don't really don't have the luxury of not responding to your training. Wow. Now for those of us, well, not me, but for someone listening who is not quite stable and wants to do something heroic, how would they go about getting into the Secret Service? They post jobs all the time. I know that. They seem to always be hiring now. USAjobs.gov is the federal government's main website for hiring, and they advertise those positions. I think they're listed as criminal investigator positions, and or they may be listed as a special agent either way, but if people can go and look under the agency. And there's certain requirements. So you look at what the requirements are. There's age requirements, and, and there's physical requirements, obviously. And you fill out the application. You have to be able to pass the background and obviously make sure, you know, meet the demands. And they're probably going to, they're going to, you know, you'd be willing to move wherever they tell you to move and travel wherever they tell you to travel. I hate to say being young and dumb might be in your favor. Yeah. No. <laughs> it, when I was young, when I was young and single, it was, you know, it was perfectly fine. Do you uh, require, do they require a degree? Um, I believe they require either a college degree or equivalent experience, I believe, but I, I have not looked at their job announcement later uh, lately. You had mentioned that you were in college and then you went to the police department. Did you get a degree and then go to the police? Or? Yes. Um, I have a degree in administration of justice at Penn, from Penn state. My undergrad is. Oh, wow. Okay. What made you decide to go straight to the police or was that the goal? You wanted to agree to go into the police? Yeah, I knew I was going to go into law enforcement, you know, even when I was in college. So I just, I suspected that I would go federal at some point. Nobody wanted to hire, hire you federal right out of college, really. They wanted some sort of experience. And fortunately, I found a, a great police department in Virginia, the Chesterfield County, Virginia Police Department, which gave me outstanding training. I had great experience down there. Yeah, and it's not too far away from the capital, right? 
Now it's a couple hours. I, I loved Richmond, Virginia, that area. And they got, then I got lucky enough that when the Secret Service hired me, they said, we're going to keep you right there in Richmond for a while. And I couldn't have asked for a better situation. Nice. And that put you near uh, another famous uh, thriller writer, uh, David Baldacci. Yeah, Charlottesville. I've actually, because uh, that was in my area that I was doing a lot of investigations. So I've actually been out toward his house. And actually, he doesn't even know this. He wouldn't know this, but he was doing research on his Keenan Maxwell series at the Washington field office. And I actually got introduced to him and he had asked me before I knew who he was, he had asked me some questions about polygraphs because I was supervising a polygraph team at that point. And I had answered some questions. Then all of a sudden I noticed the guy who had asked me these questions because he was with another agent who I knew was writing these down. And then all of a sudden the, the, the agent who was with him said, oh, by the way, this is David Baldacci, who, who I knew who it was at that point. I knew by name and not by sight. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know who you are. And so that, and that was before I'd ever started writing or anything. So I've, I've been around him a couple of times since, but yeah, we've actually, he doesn't know this, but we've actually met and, and I've actually answered some of his questions before. Well, it's an interesting coincidence or full circle. I'm not sure, but from my understanding, you're a huge audiobook fan. Yes. I think you're a Baldacci fan. I'm not yes, sure. I've read uh, a lot of his books. You were in the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And my first audiobook that I read before I tore into him completely was David Baldacci's Split Second. Yeah, that was, uh, was it the first King and Maxwell book? It was one of the first. Yes. Yep. So a strange coincidence. And from what I understand, in the Secret Services, when you started to get hooked onto audiobooks. Yes, because I was uh, commuting uh, back and forth uh, in the D.C. area, which is a nightmare. And so not only was I reading a lot of audiobooks, but my wife and I were listening to a lot of audiobooks. So we were going through probably at least an audiobook a week. Excellent. And that planted the seed for you to ultimately decide to write your own? Yeah, my wife and I would talk about the audiobooks at night. We would uh, then say, you know, okay, what did you like about it? What didn't you like? What would you do different? And uh, eventually my wife suggested that I take on a challenge and try to write a book. And it didn't happen for for years because I was traveling all over the place and working crazy hours. But once I left the Secret Service and moved up to the Pittsburgh area and started working normal hours, that's when I gave it a shot and really lucked out with my first book. Yeah, you did. Now, one thing I think is interesting. So when you and your wife talked about the books, and don't take this wrong, it sounds like you're similar to my wife and I, and you might be a little nerdy. Um, yeah, and probably more, and I'll be more picky about the law enforcement stuff than most people. My, man, my wife will pick apart anything. She's She'll 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 notice continuity errors that nobody in the world would notice. But I'll I'll pick apart you know ridiculous stuff for law enforcement. I'll be like that agency doesn't use that gun, and of course you know ninety nine percent of the readers won't notice that. But I'll be like no 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 I just saw an, I, I just saw an NCIS guy the other day and I know they don't carry those and or and of course if somebody you know writes about a gun that you know oh, they flick the safety off the gun. And I know that gun doesn't have a safety. That drives me crazy because especially these days, because everything can be Googled pretty much. So you were almost writing to correct the record. Uh, I, I wrote with, with a vow to try to be authentic, not, not go into crazy detail that would bore readers, but to at least do the research to get it, to get, get it right. And, and to not go to Hollywood and, you know, make everything look like a law and order episode where there's, 
where they only work one case and every phone call they receive is about that case. And, you know, they can, in the other shows where they slap suspects in the head all the time and stuff like that. So I wanted to de-Hollywood some of it. It seems like none of your books are about Secret Service. No, I've started to, I've always avoided it. I always felt more comfortable having a few degrees of separation there. My current series, I've started at least touching on it and bringing in characters on the periphery who are either in protective details or involved with the secret service. Mm. And okay. Yeah. The first one, it was, it involved somebody being killed who was being protected at the time. Is that what you Right. Mean? Right. So I started, started at least using, I had that knowledge and experience at least with some protection, the protective details. So I started feeling more comfortable with that. And then finally a, a friend of mine, who's a, a very talented author, uh, Tom Sweaterlick, um, when we were in New York at a, a conference, he, He's a very soft-spoken guy, but he pretty much yelled at me and told me I need to start using Secret Service stuff because I've got that in my in my um, repertoire. So I said, okay, fine. So my, <laughs> my next book, my book after Bold Action Remedy, which is the book you referenced, is Record Scratch. And I, I involved the Secret Service and counterfeit money in that one. When's the audio book coming out on that? should be this month. I'm, I actually need to send an email out with the uh, narrator today and see where we are on that one. So I'm hoping that's going to come out very soon. Is it the same narrator? Uh, no, there is a different narrator for Record Scratch. There was a scheduling conflict, I believe. That's always it's always rough. <laughs> yes, so I would, yeah, it would be great to always have the same narrator, but uh, unfortunately, that that, that I've, I've I've had like for all my books, I think I've had three or four narrators. Oh well, now are the publishers getting them, or are you doing this through ACX on your own? How are you getting? No, them? for my first book, Resolve, the publisher handled it through Blackstone, and then through everything else was ACX. Um, I retained the audio rights to my current series, so that's on me to do ACX. I wanted to make sure that they got into audio. Well, that's a—I hate to say—that's a good reason to keep your day job because then you can pay outright and hold the royalties when you right become a right but i mean you seem to be doing very well i mean you your first book out the gate was a finalist in a 2014 international thr- thriller award. yeah that was quite a shock that was uh, one of those things where i was just thrilled that it was getting good reviews and you know publishers weekly was saying nice things and all that and uh and then um i got an email actually i was at work and i got an email from gwen florio who is a, a fellow author who's unbelievably talented and she said all it said was can you believe it and I just responded back, no, what are you talking about? And she, <laughs> and then she sent me the screenshot, I think, of the fact that Resolve and, and her book at the time were, were oh, wow. up for um, best first novel in that category for the Thriller Award. So that kind of helped get me going. And obviously, it, and it led to a two-book deal with a, 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 public, a, you know, a different publisher and then now I'm with Down and Out Books, which is a fantastic publisher, and I'm with them for the foreseeable future. Oh, excellent. One thing great about that is it, I'm sure, put you on the map to where now you're taken seriously. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it helps. It's, it's, the market has so many authors out there. Um, they're in, um, with the, with, the phenomenon of self-publishing, which which is not a bad thing because it is hard to get published. I'm not saying I'm not saying anything bad about self-publishing, are, but the, the market is so diluted with books and authors out there. Um, you, it's good to have anything that helps you stand out, whether it be uh, traditionally published or be with 
uh, you know, publishers with solid reputations and award nominations and whatnot. So um, I'll take whatever I can get. Now I've had um, Brian Freeman on, I'm guessing you're familiar I don't think with I am. him. Okay. He writes uh, the strand series. Oh, okay. I know that one. Yes. We were talking about it and audio is definitely an important thing to him to such a degree that his book that came out this year was exclusive to audio first. Wow. That, that, and yeah. And if you're popular on audible, that's huge. I was going to ask you, are you finding that too? I know Jerry Williams just came out. She's also another previous guest and stated that her first book was outselling the print copies on audible. You know, I, and that's, and I've got at least one of my books uh, measured twice. I'm willing to bet that it has sold more in audio than it has in print at this point. And I have no idea why it is extremely popular on audio and more so than my other books and more so than it is in print. And I, I have absolutely no idea why. Oh yeah. You're not going to fight it. All you want to know is why. So you can. Right, exactly. <laughs> or maybe that narrator has a huge extended family. I, I have no idea. And they've all been downloading it. I don't care. Just buy it. You don't even have that, to read it. Just, just no. download it. I don't care. I don't care if you're on the treadmill. I don't care if you're in the garage and you're barely listening to it. Just download it. Fantastic advice. So what is coming next for you? We found out that the audiobook is coming out soonish. This show may be after your book. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah, so the my current series is uh the Trevor Galloway series with down and out books. Uh Bold Action Remedy was the first one. Record Scratch was the second one. Uh, and it, that's one the one that hopefully audio will be out here in the next uh, month or two. And then uh, my third one, Forgiveness Dies, is now scheduled. I just found out the date the other day, um, October 14th. So I had one question. I forgot to ask this, but I was curious. There seems to be a real thread about addiction running through your books. Uh, yeah, the, there was in some of them. I got uh, in Measure Twice. I definitely hit it. Um, that was mostly because of the uh, opioid epidemic and kind of a shout out to my hometown of Huntington, West Virginia, because they've just been decimated by uh, opiates and heroin. And uh, then I ended up with the Galloway character. Um, I ended up kind of sticking with the theme of addiction. Uh, It's just, it's such a, a powerful tool to use. It's not anything personal to me. Um, it's, but as a tool to use for the device, um, of when I'm writing that character, um, not for any particular, you know, personal reason, other than the fact that it just really worked with the story for the Galloway character I was creating. Well, he's not exactly, he's not anti-hero, but he's got issues. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's, um. I've written a couple that have a couple of characters that have, you know I might call anti-heroes, but um, he's. Uh, I've had people try to define him and those and those stories, and it's not quite noir, and it's not quite. It's not always mystery, and it's not always thriller. It's I just call it crime fiction, and uh, hopefully he's complex enough that people always find him interesting. And throughout the series, I've made a conscious decision to let him evolve and change with the stories rather than keep him um, a static character, kind of like a, a Jack Reacher character that Lee child does where, who, who, you know what you're getting. He's always going to be the same 
whether it's book one or book 20, um, which is, which is great because it works for Lee child. He's doing okay. So more like Michael. Right. So uh, my, my guy, you know, Trevor Galloway is changing drastically throughout the series um, as hopefully a real person would um, based on life events. And who are your influences? Oh gosh, I got so many. Um, I've mentioned uh, several of them on here. Um, Gwen Florio and, and whatnot. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of an author named John Verdon. Um, he's, he, he wrote a book, uh, his first, he's written several books, but his first book, think of a number I thought was just fantastic and, um, just so original. And that was the start of a series with a detective named Dave Gurney. And I'm actually listening to the, the most recent in that series right now. There's, there's a whole crew that I work with, with, on a website called the thrill begins with international thriller writers. EA Amar is, he's got a book out called the unrepentant. He's great. Shannon Kirk, the last book that she wrote that just made a huge impact on me was uh, method 1533 and Mark Pryor. Um, a lot of people know him from his series with seventh street publishing, but we, we have a whole crew over there, Jennifer Hillier and every, and everybody over there. And I try to read a variety of authors and try not to just go with the, the big five or big six publishing houses and try to also get the independent press authors because a lot of them are the ones that don't get a lot of the marketing help. But their, their stories are sometimes a lot more original and creative than what you'll find with the, on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. Do you guys kind of help each other out. Yeah, that? we'll run ideas by each other sometimes. We've actually collaborated on so far one anthology and we got another one coming. Uh, the one we did before is called uh, The Night of the Flood and uh, several of us, contrib- there was 14 of us that contributed and created one novel out of stories with that one. And we, but we'll bounce ideas off each other sometimes and I think some of us have used each other as beta readers and I know I've gotten emails from people asking law enforcement type questions, policing type questions before. Are there any established authors who kind of have reached down to you guys or across to you guys and sort of helped you out? Uh, Oh yeah. Um, We've gotten, we've gotten so much help from uh, Hank Ryan Philippi, Um, you know, helped promote us. Jenny Milchman has helped promote us. Um, we got uh, uh, for Night of the Flood, uh, David Morell of Rambo fame gave us gave mm-hmm. us a blurb for for that book, and then the support we get from the writing community is just just phenomenal. Uh, just yeah, one of the one of the more uncomfortable things that I ever have to do with writing is to get blurbs, the, the little quotes on the back of the book, and sure. you send the manuscript out and hope that somebody you know with a huge name is going to give you blurbs and you know i've 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 gotten blurbs from people like james grady who wrote six days of the condor and joseph wow. fender uh you know daniel daniel palmer and kim howe and these people who who have they don't they didn't have to do this stuff and but but they they'll they'll give the manuscript to read and if they like it they'll say something nice and uh, I can't say enough about it. It's such a unique community because it's like 99% of the people are jealous of somebody else, but they'll help whoever they can. It's, it's so weird. Yeah. It, uh, it's like podcasting. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Because it, but the truth is, ninety nine percent of you are starving. Right? Everybody, it's like almost everybody has a job or is retired, except for the biggest names, right? Or they're married, <laughs> or they're married to somebody who is you know bringing in the income. So maybe that's my problem. I need to talk to my wife about her making more money. Is she an agent as well? No, no, no. She she does financial work for a, a large corporation. So she she's the smart one okay. in the family. So, so you won't be quitting the day job because she'll see too. Keep the finances. Yeah, straight. exactly. Well, excellent. So people can find out more about you at Hensley books or Hensley dash books.com. Yes. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook. Uh, they can just search JJ Hensley author page. I'm on Twitter. My handle is JJ Hensley author. Got a Goodreads page, Amazon page. I'm everywhere. So I can just Google JJ Hensley and I come up somewhere and hopefully, hopefully no bad pictures show. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I will definitely link to you everywhere in the episode and thanks so much for coming on. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.